Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am Assistant Professor of Religion at University of Southern California at Dornsaif and the New Books Network host in Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Yao Zhihua from the Chinese University of Hong Kong to talk with us about his new book, Non-Existent Objects in Buddhist Philosophy, Unknowing What There Is Not. This is published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Academic. So welcome, Zhihua. Thank you so much for writing this mind-bending book. I mean, even just the re- reading the title makes me feel like have a cognitive uh, dissonance. But anyway, in common sense terms, right, only existing things can be known, right? But as Lucy explained in your book, many thinkers, East, West, past, present, they actually said, yes, you can know non-existent things. And you explained to us how did these thinkers made their arguments. Your book is just full of surprises and insights. So when I'm reading it, I often tell myself, okay, that's what it is about. Uh-huh, now I got it. But I don't think I can reproduce your arguments in the book. But, you know, you get that aha moments through the reading. And I also hope the listeners of this podcast will find similar moments during our interview. And maybe this podcast will encourage at least some to pick up this dense book and start reading it. And rest assured, this is the most difficult book I've read so far. It's not about length. The book itself is only like 181 pages, including endnotes. It's all about the density of new information. Each page right, contains like informations, new arguments that need to be read multiple times and processed very carefully. So listeners, if you're like me, please don't get discouraged while reading. Even though the book is meant to be read as a whole, right? you can get a well-rounded picture about like non-existent objects in Buddhist philosophy. But if you feel it's too much, learn the whole history, the whole picture, uh, the philosophical diversities among different schools, it's totally okay to just focus on one chapter or even one argument within a chapter. Because each argument explained coherently as a philosophical unit. So you can actually tackle the book in baby steps. And that's how I managed to finish reading this book. And I hope you'll find my reading tip useful. Um, so, Zhihua, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, how you came to study ancient philosophy, especially Buddhist philosophy, and how I, and how did you find out your book is about knowing non-existing objects? Uh, thank you, Jessica, uh, very much for spending your precious time reading my humble book. It's my great honor to be here in the New Books Network. Uh, I'm the professor at Department of Philosophy, the Chinese University uh, of Hong Kong. My research area include Buddhist philosophy, India philosophy, philosophy of religion, phenomenology, and philosophy of uh, mind. I received my PhD from Boston University, where I specialize in Buddhist philosophy. After the publication of my first book, The Buddhist Theory of Self-Cognition, in uh, 2005, I began working on this topic of non-existence or nothing. And eventually the book was published three years ago. So I've been doing nothing for more than 10 years. Thank you so much. 
um, for like letting us know. But when did you? Why did you start working on the topic of nothing? What's intriguing about it for you? What's fascinating about it? Yeah, for that part, maybe I'll get into that uh, in the later. Uh, uh, later parts. Okay. Um, keep or keep alert and listen to that interesting parts. So thank you. Um, your book contains an introduction, eight chapters divided in two parts. I'd like to start our interview uh, with your introduction. Here, um, you lay, lay out like three inquiries central to your analysis in the ensuing chapters. But one is about whether we can cognize or know non-existent objects. So some Buddhist schools like Sarvastivadins, the school that sees past, present, future, namas, or events as existing, um, because they are knowable. But Sarvas Dimadin say no, but other schools say yes. And of course, the focus of your book is the camps who said yes, right? And why they say yes and how they justify their answer. One way that these schools can say yes is that they distinguish between generating condition, Janaka Pratyaya, and the other and the condition, the other condition is a condition in a quality of object, Alambana Pratyaya. Um, foreign terms. Could you, for the benefits of the listeners, explain what are these two terms? Why are they important for your analysis? Yeah, you've caught a pair of key concepts in this whole book, actually. Uh, there's the theory of cognition commonly accepted by major Buddhist schools. That is, the cognition is possible with the two conditions. The basis, that is, sense organ, at an object. But Subandu, uh, one of the key figures I'm working on, uh, took the key step in distinguishing between generating cognition, which is in Sanskrit, Janaka Pratyaya, uh, which is the condition that gives rise to cognition, and objective cognition, Alambana Pratyaya, that is the cognition merely in the quality of an object. He agrees that both conditions are necessary but they function differently. The sense organ is in a generating condition, where the object is in a condition in a qualitative object. He uses example of future things and nirvana to illustrate this point. Both are no doubt knowable, but they cannot give rise to any condition, because the cause, that is future things, cannot be temporarily Posterior to its effect, that is, their cognition at the present. So, in the case of nirvana, uh, by definition, uh, it is the cessation of all arising. So, these objects, such as future things and nirvana, do not have to act as the generating condition of their cognition, but are merely its objective condition. Uh, so in the case of non-existent things, certainly it cannot produce anything. So it cannot be in a generated condition of cognition, but this non-existent thing can still be in a condition of cognition in a qualitative object. That means it can be an object of cognition. So therefore, it is established that there is a cognition of non-existent object, which is the key concept for the first part of the whole book. Well, thank you so much. But the future and nirvana as examples of um, Alambana Pratyaya, but 
doesn't have the generating condition. That's the key. So let's just try to hold this in mind and then go through the arguments. So thank you so much, Jihua, for such a lucid explanation. So in the introductions, after laying out the key concept, you map up, map out for us the whole structure of your book. Here I'm just you know reiterating it for the benefits of the listeners, so you know if you pick up this book what to expect. There are four chapters in part one where you lay out the key arguments of three schools and one thinker, uh, Mahasangika. Darshantika, early Yogacara, and of course Vasubandhu, and these are arguments regarding how they talk about cognitions of um, non-existing objects and how they distinguish cognizable non-existence from other types of non-existence, such as absolute non-existence, illusions, abstract universal, special meditative um, objects. Here you also explain how they argue, their arguments relate to negative expressions, cognitive thoughts or cognitive errors, and emotional experiences. Then you segue to part two into epistemology. Chapter five, chapters five and seven focus on the epistemological issues regarding um, non-existence, like how do you know? Um, chapter six is about empty terms in Buddhist epistemological school. And chapter eight is the final chapter where, where you lay out the typologies of nothing. I don't really know nothing has a typology until I read your book. But this is a lot of new information for readers to process further. So let us dive in into each chapter and explain the foreign terms, the seemingly bizarre concept one by one. Part one, chapter one. Here you marshaled quite a few scattered sources in Pali, Chinese, and reconstructed for us three arguments for the cognition of non-existent objects. Um, of the Mahasangika schools. The first two are soon forgotten by later Buddhists and would remain forgotten until you, Professor Yao Zhihua, excavated them, I would assume. Um, and then the first argues that Anushaya Klesha is the latent defilement, have no object. This is a sociological concept to distinguish ordinary people in deep meditative state versus an enlightened being. And the second argument is that jnana or awareness have no objects. And these two arguments seem to follow the same strategy in the sense that they are associated with sankhara, therefore have no objects. And the third argument is, is the relatively well-known one. And the focal point is about the Sautrantika Sarvastivada debate, that is because the past and future does not exist, and therefore consciousness of the past and future are consciousness without objects. So please tell us, our listeners, a bit more about what sort of problems these three arguments were trying to kind of resolve and maybe also explain to us well, who are the Mahasangikas and their related subschools and how do they differ from the Sarvastivadins? Yeah, thank you. This is a very nice summary of the book and, and also the chapter one. Yeah, As I said in the book, uh, we know very little about Mahasangika school. And we only learn about their views on this issue from scattered sources of, of their critiques. Uh, one feature I noted is that uh, unlike other later schools, the Masangikas had concerns about sociological issues. Uh, this is especially evident in their discussions and Anushaya, which is written performance. Uh, only later, the cognition of non-existent object gradually became a purely epistemological issue. Regarding 
their historical backgrounds. I regret that I, I didn't provide enough background information on many early Buddhist schools that I've been uh, discussing in this book. Uh, but in my uh, 2005 book, The Buddhist Theory of Self-Cognition, I also deal, uh, deals with the uh, various early Buddhist schools such as Masangika, Savasvara, and Susandika. And there, I had separate sections introducing basic historical information in each schools. So interested readers are welcome to refer to that book. Here, I'm not going to dive into too much historical details. Thank you. Um, for listeners interested in the historical details, um, check out Professor Yao Zhuhua's earlier book. Oh, I think a good Buddhist dictionary would have some important um historical backgrounds. But now let's segue into uh, chapter two. Um, chapter, chapter two is about um, Darshdantika's wheel. Darshdantika is a subgroup of Sarvastivada. So here you recovered this Darshdantika's um, wheel on non-existent objects from Abhidhamma Mahavibhasha Sastra. This is the text edited by Vibhashikas. The Vibhashika is an influential subgroup of Sarvastivada. And Darsh Dantika's view is that it's interesting because you argued that they learned Mahasangika view of non-existent objects, which is already showing us like Mahasangika, Sarvastivada, they may be not sworn enemies, right? They learn from each other. And then, but they also further developed these Mahasangika arguments that he, they inherited. So from the sources scattered in, I get there is three main texts, Maha, um, Mahavibhasha, and the other is Cheng Shilun, Janaka, Paramopadesha, and Nyaya Sutra, right? You uncovered four main arguments. One is about saturating out things, Vastu into internal and external things. And then the other is Vedana into, the Vedana is kind of uh, sensations, feelings into bodily feelings and mental feelings. And the second argument is resorting to optical illusions, like we all perceive non-existing mirage. And the fourth is about negative statements, like we are aware, we can be aware of non-existence of the desire. Uh, for example, that's part of the condition of getting enlightened. And then for meditative experiences, um, for example, meditative objects existing or non-existing. So that sounds like a lot of interesting concepts. Could you please pass out, unpack for the benefits of listeners? What are the significance of this argument and historically, and how did they get developed by this um, Dash Dandika school? Uh, among all the chapters, uh, I'm actually least satisfied with this chapter. As compared to other chapters, this chapter has the richest resources from Savasvada Abhidhamma works. Uh, which are, yeah, most of them extend in, in Chinese translation or, or Sanskrit. Uh, the debate between the two sub-schools of Savasvada, that is Vibhashika and Dastarika, is also well known among scholars. So I, uh, while writing this chapter, I intentionally avoid overlapping with early studies and emphasize those aspects that were neglected by, by them. For example, debate on whether meditative objects exist or not. Uh, if I were to rewrite this chapter, I would, as suggested by you, lay out the historical development of these arguments more clearly. 
certainly the difficulty in doing so is that we are not very clear about the so-called Stanikas. How this relate to Stanika is also a difficult issue. So Darsh Tantikas just really we know about them because my Baishikas wrote about them. <laughs> I'm not asking to rewrite the whole chapter. I'm just amazed by how much new information can get there for us. Um, so chapter three, let's move. That's Yogacara Bhumi, right? Um, this is a Yogacara Bhumi is an encyclopedic treatise of Yogacara school. And for early Yogacara view of uh, Buddhi and Vijnana, uh, cognition of non-existent objects, um, this is what you do to excavate these texts for those uh, views. So here you summarize and group Yogacara Bhumi's positions into five arguments. The first is about the past and future that um, reminds us of Mahasangikas and Sarvastivadin's uh, debates. The second is about expanding the definition of dharma, right? These uh, momentarily arising and disappearing kind of uh, um, particles to include non-existent dharmas. And the third is about no self and impermanence. Two dharmas that neither conditions or no conditions, so like the horn of a rabbit or son of a barren woman, they're all ontologically non-existing, but somehow we can talk about them. And the fourth argument is about food and drinks. Um, this is a little bit, anyway, let me just try to explain what I think I gather from your book. So food and drinks are seen as non-existing in many Buddhist schools because only the kind of uh, the dharmas, the minute article, particles, events, right? They, they exist. Food and drinks just combinations of dharmas, therefore they do not really exist. Kind of my getter is is like modern scientific realism. Everything is made up of atoms, elementary particles, so they don't really exist in their own rights. My stomach will say no, they actually exist. <laughs> but like if you follow the the the, the Abhidhamma kind of argument or Yugacharya argument, they say no, they don't exist. So that's the fourth argument. And the fifth is about how Yogacharians who commit to ontologically non-existing dharmas distance themselves from a kind of ethical nihilism that sees all things as non-existing uh, by seeing things as they are. That's how they distinguish, right? I don't, we don't see things as non-existing. We see things as they are. So Yogacara thinkers reject the wholesale rejection of existence and argues that one sees existing dharmas as existing and non-existing dharmas as non-existing. All right, that's a little bit kind of a mind-biting. So you see things as things they really are means you see existing things as existing and non-existing as non-existing. You have to explain for us, like, what does it, what do they mean? <laughs> and then, now, now you conclude this chapter by comment on that Yogacharians are generally successful in defending their positions and they are conditions of... Um, there are conditions of non-existent objects. So could you please explain and unpack for us um, why are these arguments important to know and um, you know, maybe also contrast them with some mainstream Western views on negation and cognition of non-existence? Uh, in part one, uh, my comparative approach is not as explicit as in part two, uh, as we'll get into there. Uh, but this doesn't mean that uh, the issues discussed in part one are less relevant to us today or to the mainstream Western views. 
all issues related to existence or non-existence in this chapter and other chapters are contributed by the linguistic phenomena peculiar to Indo-European languages. Uh, in Sanskrit, for instance, when, when one says asti, atitam, asti, anagaram, uh, yeah, this is the, the first discussed by Vasubandhu. So it can mean there is, uh, which is translation of asti, the past, and there is, again, the translation of asti, the future. Or it can be translated as the past exists. Exists, again, is the translation of asti, and the future exists, again, translation of asti. So this is because popular, uh, Asti, one of the Sanskrit copyrights, Asti. And existential work are to a great extent confused in Sanskrit and in other Indo-European languages. Vasubandhu thinks that the word Asti is applied to what exists as well as to what does not exist. The past does not exist, but it exists previously. The future does not exist but it will exist. Therefore, we can say there are past and future, but it does not necessarily mean that the past and future exist. The source of the problem goes back to the overlapping or confusion between copyright and the existence of work in almost all Indo-European languages. In contrast, the two types of words are clearly distinguished in some non-Indo-European languages, such as Chinese or Arabic. Uh, English, although it is the uh, Indo-European language, has less tendency to distinguish to be, sorry, has the tendency to distinguish uh, to be from to exist. And hence, its popular and existence of work are less easily confused because uh, we, we in English, we used to be and to exist in some different sense. Yeah. This is why we can make better sense of these sentences in their English translations there in uh, their Sanskrit original. Yeah, that's just one example. Thank you so much, Zhihua. So just for the readers, uh, copular actually means just the to be verb. And then in Sanskrit, it's asti. One of the forms is asti. And then in, you know, uh, in I think in Chinese, at least we have the shi and yu that distinguish um, this two sense of, of, of the copular to be, right? To be can mean... Um, there exists to become used, this is. So that's just the linguistic terms for listeners. And then that can cause actually lots, lots of problems of interpretations. And then people can just keep on debating on it. I don't think you can have a definitive answer. But if you want to know more how that, you know, relates to the issues of non-existing objects and then whether you can perceive them, uh, read this chapter. So chapter four. Ah, this is a very nice chapter. <laughs> and of course, he's talking about my favorite philosopher, this Indian 5th uh, uh, century philosopher Vasubandhu is a key figure in many philosophical schools like Sarvastivada, Dashtantika Sarvastivada, and of course, Yogacara. 
and an in-depth understanding of his writings will shed light on the relationships between the so-called Mahasangika, whose concept theory of cognition of non-existence object was inherited and developed by Darshatantika. Uh, and Yugachara. So Vasubandhu's writings are exciting also because he has enemies who wrote extensive refutations of Vasubandhu's arguments. So scholars can get to this context and backgrounds of certain debates. So in this chapter, Zhi Hua, you summarize Vasubandhu's positions into six arguments, all of which refute this Vaibhashika's view that the past and present, uh, the, the future exist. Um, Shall I read it? Let me just read out something. So whatever is knowable existing, this this is the Vibhashika view, right? The two generating conditions for Vibhashika is the a basis, that is the sense that we talk about when we talk about the introduction chapter, an object knowable. And then the second point is that the past and future are knowable. Therefore, Vibhashika has reached the conclusion that therefore the past and future are existent, uh, which is a kind of a circular argument, um, which on page 8, you mentioned that this is an epistemological argument based on an epistemological definition of existence. It never really touches upon the ontological status of past and future. And then after you lay out what is the, my bachelor position, you actually um, map out Masubandu's arguments, six of them, against the above Vibeshika's position. Given the richness of Masubandu's arguments, especially how he inherited other schools' philosophical schools, kind of yet further develop his own arguments, add his own twists, maybe could you please tell the audience why you think Vasubandhu's uh, received influence from all directions and is a great syncretic that you mentioned on page 88. And maybe also tell us how useful are the labels of philosophical schools such as Mahasangika, Sarvastivada, Dashtandika, Yogacara, especially when we trace argument about cognition of non-existent objects and comment on your own methodology. Why do you choose to follow this particular historical contour and philosophical development of this particular debate? What are some advantages and disadvantages of doing research in this way? Yeah, I said I, I don't want to talk about too much about history, but here you are pushing me again. Um, yeah, Vasubandhu is a complex historical figure as he has left us so many creative writings, which seem to belong to different labels of philosophical schools, such as Savasvada, Sotrandika, and Yuxiara. Uh, from from Varna's theory of two Vansubanus to the recent theory of Sotrandika uh, as found in Abhidhamma Kosobasya being a disguised Yuxiara, uh, scholars try to make sense the complexity of his thought. As far as the current issue is concerned, I think it makes more sense to consider him a great syncretic, as it is evident that he received influence from both the Yuxarbomi and the Stadika. And meanwhile, his position is clearly Sushantika. So on this issue, they were fighting with their common enemy, the Orthodox Vibhashikas. Uh, Actually, doing historical study in the India context is always difficult, if not impossible, uh, since so few historical resources are available. Hence, I paid more attention to the philosophical aspects rather than the historical one. 
Now, advantage of this approach is that we can explore the relevance of these Indian thinkers to uh, contemporary philosopher in a more fully uh, manner. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so you remind us philosophy, especially some of the particular arguments, transcend time. But even though they receive, you know, you can see the development of the ideas based on Mahasangika, Sarasvivadas, you know, you see, you trigger countries, the historical inheritance, but it's important thing is that they are making a kind of a logical argument on their own that can be um, extracted from those historical conditions. So now part one is done for chapters. We are ready to unpack part two, epistemology another like huge area. So chapter five and seven focus on these issues, uh, epistemological issues regarding non-existence. And chapter six is about empty terms. And chapter eight, the final chapter is about topologies of nothingness. Let's go through them one by one. Chapter five is non-cognition, activates um, Ishvara Sena's ideas on non-cognition from sources scattered in discussions about Fei Liang um, in Dhammapala, um, Asvabhava, Gina Badra, and the Chinese counterparts, and the discussions about Apramanata, Feiliang, right, in Dhammakirti, in his uh, commentaries. Um, so these sources all dated back to 7th to 8th century common era. Um, understanding these arguments help clarify relations between the three prominent thinkers of non-cognition. Um, the Mimansaka Kumarila, the Buddhist Ish, um, Isvarasena and Ishvarasena students, Namakirti, and to map out the early development of theory of non-cognition, at least based on these three thinkers. So from this scattered source, again, you extract for us the philosophical arguments, um, uncover influ influential early theories of um Pramana, maybe Pramana Vedic cognition. I know it's not a perfect translation, um, but you know, um, but this includes three instead of the two commonly known ones: perception and reference. Then the third one is being non-cognition, right? The Vedic cognitions includes three. So, which according to a recently discovered Donghuang manuscripts, especially um, Tangguan's treatise, is the cognition of non-existence or non-cognizable objects that's mentioned in page one hundred eight. So, could you please, um, you know, explain to our listeners who proposed this kind of three pramana theory and who were its defenders and critics and why are pramana right this non-cognition failure or um, are eventually forgotten by later Yogacharins? Yeah, regarding the Buddhist Pramana school or, or Buddhist epistemological school, although we know a lot about two of its major figures, that is Dignaga and Dhammakirti, uh, we know very little about what happens in between them, which is roughly in a span of 60 years. Based on very limited sources, I have explored the theory developed by Ishwarsina during this period. This theory proposed the third Pramana that is responsible for the cognition of non-existent objects. As uh, I've shown in chapter seven, the McCurty was the major critique of this theory. He rejects the proposal for a separate pramana and includes the cognition of non-existent objects in inference, which is the second type of pramana. So given his 
great influence in the history of Buddhist philosophy, Ishwarasena's theory was eventually forgotten by later Buddhists. Um, but like, what is the point for Ishwarasena to propose his third pramana, other than perception and reference? Like, what was the philosophical reasons or things that important issues he wants he wants to resolve using this um, um, the third one? Yeah, basically, uh, uh, the first two perception and inference are responsible for positive, for knowing of positive entities. But for him, there are still so-called negative entities or negative uh, or non-existent events. So those uh, should be known. So the means to know those negative entities or negative events are the so-called uh, the third pramana, which is non-cognition. Ah, so maybe the difference between <clears throat> Ishwarasena is that Ishwarasena feels like you need a separate pramana to deal with non-existent things, but maybe Dhammakirti is saying that no reference and perception and 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 um, inference is enough. Is that more or less? Yeah, okay. yeah that's so mind-binding, but thank you so much for um, clarifying this for us. So chapter six, empty terms. Here you analyze Dignaga's view on empty terms. This is a key issue in modern analytic philosophy as well. And it's also an age-old issue that may never be fully resolved, but you know, Dignaga's answers or solutions are still um, uh, interesting. So these empty terms, or if, for example, no self, right? The self does not exist. Impermanence, a permanent entity doesn't exist. Emptiness, right? Intrinsic nature does not exist. They appeared early. They wasn't treated systematically until the 6th century common era when the Buddhist logic school developed. And of course, Dignaga was one of the leaders of this logic, uh, Buddhist uh, logic school. Um, he proposed two theories. One is a method to, of paraphrase that resembles um, Beatrice Rousseau's theory of Russell's theory of descriptions in dealing with empty terms. And the other method is his Apoha theory that was later developed by Dhammakirti into a pan-fictionalism. So Tibetans right, deal with the problem of empty subject terms, mainly with the principle of conceptual subjects that sees emptiness, rabbit's horn, desks as conceptual construct, imagined kalpita, uh, verbal objects, um, subda, um, subdarta. For Dhammakirti, statements like, for example, the primordial matter does not exist is not a self-contradictory thing because real terms like desks have causal efficacy and empty terms like rabbi's horn does not have causal efficacy. So it's not self-contradictory to say that the primordial matter exists as an imagined concept but is not real existence. This is a kind of Dhammakirti's pan-fictionalism that eliminates the problem of empty terms by claiming everything are conceptual construct. 
the Chinese terms being free from democratic influence, um, you know, approach is quite different. So according to your analysis, you outlined for us, the Chinese Yugacharans dealt with empty terms mainly in three ways. One is following the path of Dignagas, right? It's just paraphrase, like I want to know how... Uh, Dignaga paraphrase. And number two is allowing exceptions for non-implicative negations. And the third one is unique and most popular among Chinese philosophers, which is indicating the propositional attitudes, clarifying basically what I say and what you say. So among these various philosophical approaches to the problem of empty terms, I'm most interested in the method of propositional attitude, which seems to be quite unique to the Chinese tradition. So could you please explain to our listeners what exactly is this propositional attitude and what are strengths and weaknesses, especially compared to, for example, Dignaga's paraphrase? And also, why should we study this kind of approach despite of its manifest weaknesses that you laid out in the um, in your book? Yeah, what I call this uh, uh, principle of uh, proportional attitude uh, is called jiebie in Chinese, uh, which can be literally translated as presuppositional distinguisher. Its purpose is to distinguish between a statement that establishes one's own view and the one that refutes the view of others. Self-establishing statements are indicated by phrases like we accept, we admit, we, and as we said. While the other refuting statements are marked by phrases such as you accept, you believe, you, and holding. It not only involves the truth or falsity, the meaningfulness or meaninglessness of the propositions themselves, but also the intentional state of their advocates. Uh, and it involves not only one party, but at least two parties. Therefore, I call this method the principle of propositional attitude. Thank so you, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> Um, may I just ask a follow-up question? Because I think I get confused. Um, so why do the Chinese philosophers feel like in, we need to include the speaker's intention? Why they what they feel, you know, what do they think is missing in Dick Naga's, for example, paraphrase, which you say is also similar to Russell's kind of theory of descriptions. Maybe um, for the benefit of listeners, explain basically what are those paraphrase and Russell's theory of description, and then maybe you can go from there. Thank you so much. Uh, for that part, it's it's a bit technical. <laughs> Could be the most technical part for the uh, in that chapter. Uh, it's roughly it's a logical technique, as uh, you know, developed by Russell in a very technical way uh, to deal uh, to deal with the uh, 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 like one of his famous uh, uh, example is the present king of France is bald. So uh, the the subject term here, the present. King of France is an empty term because in at time of Russell uh, in France there's no king already. Uh, so this 
this term then does not refer to anything, or it refers to a non-existent entity, which is the Prime King of France. Uh, but with this statement of the, uh, uh, when we say the the Prime King of uh, 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 France is bald, so how, how, how do we see this? So uh, uh, so one technique of uh, Russell developed was to rephrase it uh, in in a way that the 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 subject term of this sentence is replaced by uh, by a logical term. So uh, the logical subject is not the real subject of this sentence. So. Uh, uh, Tignaga's uh, method of paraphrase is roughly similar to this. Replace, uh, replace the uh, linguistic subject with a logical subject. Uh, so, uh, but in, a, a, in this method of principle propositional attitude, uh, the, the, the the problem was uh, because in India logic, it involves two parties. The two parties were debating uh, with the, 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 the one of the example of their debate is so-called the primordial matter exists or not. The primordial matter is roughly we can say God. So one party says God exists, but the Buddhist side says God. They don't believe God exists. So. When they got into a debate like this, so they think, uh, yeah, in the Chinese tradition, you should ind indicate who is stating a certain st uh, proposition. So if you, uh, the Buddhist, stating this, then you should mark that out. Uh, if the other party who believes in God is stating this statement, then they should also mark that they believe that. So with this principle, uh, seems they can, in one way, solve the problem empty uh, subject terms. But it raised a new issue, actually. That is so-called incommensurability between different parties involved in the debate. So uh, the propositional attitude is more privileged than the so-called object fact in determining the truth or falsity of a given proposition. It is especially so when the matter on discussion is the metaphysical concept on a philosophical view, for instance, whether God exists or not. Uh, but the danger of relying and principle of propositional attitude lays in becoming trapped in the incompatibility of rival parties. So that's the, uh, could be the uh, uh, weakness of this uh, method. But even, yeah, given weakness, uh, still it is helpful because the problem of empty terms, like many other age old philosophical problems, may never be definitely solved. Uh, it is an ongoing issue still in philosophy today. Besides Russell's theories of descriptions, other alternative methods have been developed to tackle the problem. This include, for instance, free logic, the logic of fiction, uh, 
the theory of possible worlds, and so on. Uh, the techniques that Buddhist tradition that adapted, especially the principle of propositional attitude, may provide their Western colleagues with even more options. Yeah, that's what I hope. Thank you so much. So the important thing about the Chinese approach is that it's a different way of tackling with the empty terms that we don't really see in the mainstream Western philosophical traditions. That's why it's important just to open up our horizon a little bit. Awesome. Thank you so much. Although I don't think I get your technical de- explanation of the Russell theory of description, but let's move on. I can go read your book again. So chapter seven, negative judgments. This chapter illustrates um, Dama Curtis and um, Herzl's approach um, on analysis of their experiential structures of negative cognition and their shared conclusion. This is amazing, right? Dama Curtis and Herzl, <laughs> separate by like, Um, a thousand years apart. So their shared conclusion that negative judgment presupposes affirmative perceptions. For example, um, the sentence, there is no pot. This negative cognition is secondary, a kind of um, inferential judgment based on affirmative perceptions of things other than pot. This is for Democratic position. And it's also kind of disappointment of an anticipation to perceive a pot. This is for from Herzl. So these two philosophers both are anomalies within their own traditions, and they're also separated by like uh, 1,200 years apart, and yet their approach to negative judgments share some striking similarities. So how? Uh, so what are those striking similarities? Like how can we make sense of this fact, and what do those um, similarities tell us? We are doing comparative studies in philosophy. We do sometimes find striking similarities between thinkers who are separate by time and space. And yet we have no evidence for possible diffusion. Uh, for cases like this, the only explanation is that they're being reinventing the will, so-called. So luckily, it seems easier to reinvent will in intellectual culture than in material culture. So the, the similarities between them, Kurti and Husserl, could mean that both of them are on the right track in exploring the nature of negative commission. So that's what I, you know, speculate. <laughs> so basically, um, there are certain logical um, structures, logical conclusions you can make. Doesn't matter, irrelevant of your particular culture inheritance and positions, just like certain, I don't know, feels like certain philosophical questions are shared by all human cultures. Thank you. So chapter eight, the last chapter, topology of nothing. Um, before I read your chapter, I just feel like nothing's nothing. How come there can be different types of nothing? <laughs> but here, you service philosophical traditions around the world and maps out this uh, topology of non-existence, which you classify into three types. One is private nothingness, um, like um, absence, nichts in German, and then negative nothing or absolute nothing in Chinese called wu, uh, in Japanese is mu. Uh, and then the third one is original nothing, the nothingness that gives rise to everything. Uh, for example, here you gave shunyata, right? Ever each, rep- uh, and then all these three types, right, of nothingness. Each represents the development of nothingness in the West, in India, and in China. And of course, there are 
other ways of classifying concepts, conceptions of nothingness. But your way is especially useful for studying the relatedness of, for example, Heideggerian nothingness with Taoist and Buddhist nothingness. In a nutshell, Heidegger equates nothing with being, which Heidegger claimed to have inherited from Hegel, but both Hegelian and Heideggerian nothing run parallel to the Taoist cosmological notion of nothing. As for emptiness in Buddhism, right, two ways of understanding, uh, you know, either absolute nothing or original nothing. But Nagarjuna claims emptiness to be neither being nor non-being, but according to uh, Professor Yao Zhihua, your analysis claims like emptiness itself is empty eventually leads to absolutely nothing and absolute nothing that's your term so yogacharas understand emptiness as absence or private nothing that's non-existence of subject object duality or non-existence of wondrous beings uh, and more than delineate different forms of nothingness for us right the larger significance of this particular typology is to shed a different light on how past philosophers tackle this mystery of nothing across history and across culture. So please tell us, tell our listeners, what's the advantages of seeing this kind of issue under this new threefold topology? And um, yeah, and then um, what is um, like how... Um, how, what are the kind of things that we need to be aware of when we use this this threefold typology? Yeah, first, uh, I have to correct your summary of my three types of nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, they are uh, privative nothing, negative nothing, and original nothing. But they do not correspond respectively to Nish, Wu, and Sunata, or West, China, and India. As you rightly observed in the latter part, actually, they can be mapped into different traditions in a more complicated manner, but, but not in a simple way as, as the, the, uh, the beginning of your summary. Uh, as for the advantage of this threefold topology of nothing, I hope that I have clarified some confusions in understanding of nothing in the history of Chinese, India, and Western philosophy. Let me give two examples. In the history of Western philosophy, the mystery of nothing is usually associated with two equally mysterious questions. One is why, according to Parmenides, can we think or talk about non-being? This question became, it becomes even more intriguing in contrast to the fact that we can talk about non-being or nothing with ease in our ordinary language. The other is the famous Leibnizian Heideggerian question, why is there something rather than nothing? This has been taken to be the fundamental question of metaphysics. According to my topology of nothing, when Parmenides forbid us from thinking or talking about non-being, he was warning us against the altogether not or absolute nothing. For example, square circle and the song of better woman. It is evident that this type of nothing was mainly logicians' concern, including the Chinese most, uh, most uh, the Hindu and Buddhist logicians, and the contemporary analytical philosophers. Given its nature of being logically contradictory and impossible, so this type of nothing, uh, which is you know absolute nothing, as predicted by Parmenides, 
does not really into uh, does not really enter into our realm of knowledge, but rather function as an indicator of the limit of human knowledge. What does enter into the realm of our knowledge and ordinary language is a different type of method. To break the curse of Parmenides, Plato and his followers were approaching what there is not in the sense of difference or in the Indian terminology, mutual non-being. As the absence of provision of being, this type of nothing is always an essential part of our knowledge. So the reason we can think and talk about non-being or nothing with ease in our modern language is not because Parmenides was wrong, but because we are approaching a different interpretation of nothing. So that's the first example. The second one, uh, the Leibniz was the first philosopher to put forward the perplexing metaphorical question, why is there something running nothing? Uh, various attempts to answer this question have understood nothing as an absolute nothing that is logically impossible. The question then becomes purely speculative, as if it is possible from a state of absolute nothing to exist prior to something. However, if we understand nothing in the Heideggerian or Taoist sense of original nothing, then the question is a matter of cosmogony. Uh, namely, how the concrete something with the form and image comes about from the formless, imageless state. To answer this, uh, Christian theologians, for instance, would resort to God's will, whereas Taoists would rely on the creativity of Tao. In either case, nothing should not be understood as absolute nothing or absence. Instead, nothing is the formless, imageless state of existence, which is described as earth and water covered with darkness in the book of Genesis, uh, or simply as chaos in Taoist writings. So it is only with these concepts of nothing uh, that we can make sense of this fundamental question of uh, metaphysics. Thank you so much, Zhihua. I stood corrected. So the three types of nothingness is kind of a philosophical typology of how how you how different ways you can interpret nothing. But with this kind of philosophical kind of typology, you'll go back to history and see, understand the historical debates in a new light. And each tradition have their own way of like um, different philosophers argue for different types of nothingness. So listeners, don't listen to my question. I got things wrong. Um, so after about this long time of talking about nothingness, um, so we've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here that you'd like to highlight for the listeners and readers? Uh, maybe just one more point. Uh, all about discussions non-existence or non-being uh, have to do with the over-understanding of existence or being. Actually. But what is existence? What is being? This has been the fundamental question since the beginning of philosophy. But till today, we are still powered by it. So when I deal with 
knowledge of uh, non-existence of non-being. I don't claim that I've solved all the related problems, but I only provide some alternative approaches from the Buddhist tradition. Thank you. I think now you've answered my first question, like what gets you into this discussion, write a whole book about nothing. It's all about just another way to understand, you know, existence, knowledge. Thank you so much. So last question. Before we part our ways, I'd like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question. What keeps you busy now? What are you working on? Yeah, actually, as you already said, uh, this uh, the first back to the very first question. Yeah, because I was uh, 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 always, always puzzled by the, 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 the issue of uh, being or existence. So I plan to work on non-being or non-existence first. Uh, but eventually, uh, uh, yeah, now uh, m- among many things of different nature I'm working on right now, the more philosophical issues that still, you know, uh, uh, follow me all the way actually, is con- concerned exactly with the question of being or existence. I try now actually uh, already finished a few uh, papers. Uh, try to examine the views and existence as developed by various Buddhist schools. In particular, uh, there's uh, there's a strategy among many of them in proposing a state of being in between being and non-being, existence and non-existence, which they call phenomenal existence. Uh, in Sanskrit, that 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 is prajnapti sat, or in Chinese, it's jiayu. Uh, s- s- uh, many of these uh, Buddhist schools, they uh, yeah, when they made this proposal, they adopt the so-called ontological pluralism. This is very interesting. So I also plan to evaluate. Uh, evaluate how, whether and how this view uh, can hold, can make sense. So this is what I'm writing now, actually. Yeah. Even more mind-binding, just like jiayou, the nominal existence is in between being and non-being, okay. I'm just like fascinated by all the things that um, you highlight for us. So thank you so much for your time here. And thank you again for writing this amazing book and for sharing the insights and, you know, for us to kind of think about process and learn further. Just a reminder for the future readers, I hope you pick up this book. Uh, you don't need to read the whole book in one setting. And you can get things wrong. I got things wrong. <laughs> Even after spending so much time reading it. So you can just pick up one argument in one chapter and still learn a lot. So I'm looking forward, uh, Professor Yao Zhihua, to reading your new work soon. And listeners, pick up this book. You won't be disappointed. Thank you.